Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio podcast, session number three. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number three. Session number two was really successful. Uh, Everybody seemed to enjoy the interview with Laura Dean. I certainly did. And want to give special thanks to Laura for being our, our guinea pig, our very first interview for the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hoping you're going to enjoy my upcoming interview with our friend Hillary Johnson from New York. Uh, Hillary is a freelance recording engineer, of course. Hillary's nickname is Hi-Fi Hillary, and Hillary's a big proponent of lossless audio. So I'm going to apologize up front because our Skype call is nothing like Hi-Fi in any way, shape, or form. Hillary was talking on some kind of handheld phone device that you can plug into the iPhone. I think many of you have probably seen that. And we messed around with trying to get, you know, the best sound we could. Honestly, it's a little on the distorted side, so I apologize. But the information is there, and that is what is key beyond the fidelity. I know Hillary from her associations with tape op she's a contributor to tape op she ran the website for many years i think she may very well still run the website for all i know we met through the tape op audio conference that eventually transitioned into the potluck audio conference i've known hillary for many many years and uh she's a person who wears many hats as you'll find out most of you already know about grace design and have known about them for years uh, they've been around since 1994 it was started by the two brothers michael and eben grace who still run the company to this day and you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all what you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this without a doubt. It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, You absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. 
I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. So let's get on with it. Here we go. So, Hillary, welcome to Working Class Audio. Hi, Matt. You just got a tattoo. I did. It's actually a, a revision of one that's 15 years old, so I'm pretty happy. It's nice and dark and bright now. Oh, okay. So you're just... Dark you're, and bright at the same time. You're refurbishing something? Exactly. So let's get right down to it. You live in New York, in Manhattan, right? I do. I live in New York. And how long have you lived there? I have lived in New York since 1993 and seen lots of ridiculous changes as we have in san francisco i'm sure yes maybe a variation on the theme of of change but i'm not familiar with tenant laws in new york at all do you have rent control i'm actually lucky i have a rent stabilized apartment there's there's two different kinds of rent regulated um apartments basically is either rent controlled which is free (laughs) no it's it doesn't go up at all or rent stabilized, which basically the rents go up uh, like 2% every year. In that time that you've lived there, have you been a, a recording, a freelance recording engineer that entire time? Um, I've been freelance since 2000. So the first, um, the first seven years I was here, I was a house engineer for a smaller independently owned studio. And I was also the manager there. Um, and then I, the last year I was there, I was technically just freelance there as well as somewhere along there, I started working at other studios too, freelancing. But I've been completely freelance since 2000. What's the pivotal moment in adulthood or even in your teenage years that tipped you into the recording world? What's, can you think of a point in time that just was the trigger that said... Post high school or post college? Post high school. Oh, okay. I mean, when I was in school, when I went to college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to study. So I was basically started out studying art, any kind of art, design, painting, photography, that sort of thing. And then I was also really into music in general. And I worked at the radio station and just basically working in the production department is what sort of got me into wanting to make records as well. But even, even before that, I was cutting up cassette tapes when they would break and things like that. I think it sort of all started off as an interest in audio and technology and that sort of thing. Seems like the college radio station is like an incubator for recording engineers who go to college. I was never a musician. 
and I had no interest in being a musician, but I really liked music and, you know, wanted to be a part of it. I thought, oh, I'll design album covers because that was also something I was interested in. I thought that could be a way into the music business. Um, but then I just got really fascinated with sound. Not, not not totally separate from music. I got fascinated with sound. Working at the radio station, we all, a lot of DJs would play really ambient, experimental stuff, and that was always interested me. You know, people you'd always hear about people going around doing field recordings and stuff like that. So I thought that was cool. Um, bands would come in and do interviews, and I liked recording them. I liked capturing, you know, what they had to say more than actually doing the re- the interview sometimes. <laughs> you know you'd be fascinated by that process yeah mm-hmm. and at any point in uh in your college years did you study recording in a, in a more traditional sense or broadcast yeah once i figured out what i wanted to do which was probably my junior year i i made my major radio television and film so it was basically a broadcast or a communications degree and then in addition to that, I worked in a, um, at a, I had an internship at a, produ- at a radio station, a bigger radio station. And I worked with the, um, uh, I guess it would be like working in the production department, making all the, ad- you know, doing all the ads and, um, again, doing interviews when bands would come, come by and making the carts and, you know, that sort of thing. So it was more, a lot of like, multi-track recording but only maybe three tracks <laughs> the music was in stereo but then you have to overdub the voiceover or narrator or whatever you were doing and then after college i i when i realized what i wanted to do was when i took a a recording workshop basically at um a local recording studio that was offering the workshops and took that and i realized yep this is what i want to do and before being the house engineer at this studio, mm-hmm. was there a period of freelance uh, that preceded that time? No, not at all. I pretty much learned from the house engineers that worked there. I learned from them, and I started assisting, while, all the while managing the place. I started assisting, and then every once in a while a band would come in and couldn't afford the whole package, so I was kind of the assistant, but I was sort of engineering as well. And then that just sort of became me engineering and then one of the house engineers left and you know i stepped up and you know the whole thing maybe you met a band at at a club and they wanted to record did you automatically drive the business to the studio you were the the house person at or did you ever experiment and go to other places i didn't go to any other places until later maybe the late 90s just because we couldn't get any good deals anywhere else i could offer late night hours at a reduced rate, me at a reduced rate, whatever, whenever I would find bands that I wanted to work with. I didn't start going to other places until bands would come and say, well, we want to bring you here because we have a relationship with this studio and we like working with you. So can we take you to this other place? And I'd say, sure. And then in 2000, you left that studio. I did. Or maybe it was 99, somewhere around there. Was there a particular reason to leave? I wanted to... um, not be tied into them anymore. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to work in some bigger places. And um, it was just sort of uh, when everything started changing industry-wise, um, you know, Pro Tools was probably version four at that time or something, and five maybe. Right. And uh, we weren't quite up to, up to speed. We had Pro Tools, but we didn't really, you know, we weren't, we didn't, we didn't invest a lot of money into things. And I was also just getting tired 
of it, of that place, you know. Uh, I liked engineering there, but it was kind of hard working for the owner, who was a little nuts, because they usually are. And, um, yeah, I wanted some freedom. So I left there and um, ended up working, getting a job as a tech at a bigger place. Um, at the time, it was called Sound on Sound, just a part-time job. And freelancing, engine- freelance engineering all the rest of the time. How many years of experience do you think you piled up once you left that place? And did you consider yourself, I'm a freelance engineer? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, because I had been engineering. I pretty much started engineering a year after I started there. So probably six years of engineering when I started freelancing. I mean, I could still have been a house engineer. I could have been a house engineer anywhere. But I wanted to freelance. I didn't want to work for anyone. I wanted to just be able to go wherever I wanted to go because there were places with bigger rooms, with you know better acoustic spaces, places with um, more gear, you know, places where I didn't have to worry about answering the phone if I was in the middle of making a record. That was also well, most of it was. I didn't want to have to be responsible for more than just making a record. Right, and it, and it sounds like at the place you were the house person at, you you were wearing many hats. Oh yeah. I was cleaning toilets, I was hiring and firing, I was training, I was making records, <laughs> I was booking time, you know, all that stuff. I had assistance toward the end, but it wasn't enough. You basically were like uh, a studio owner without owning the studio. Yes. Yeah, this, the owner was, he was around, but he was not really involved in much except for signing the checks and stuff. Well, maybe I signed the checks for a while too, I don't remember. <laughs> maybe you signed <laughs> his name ago. to the checks. It was a long time ago. Yeah, sign your own paycheck. That'd be great. I mean, in retrospect, I don't know if leaving there hurt my career or helped my career because I made a lot of records in the 90s, a lot more records that I've made in the last 10 years. Granted, they weren't necessarily records that, you know, I was proud of or wanted to be involved with. Some I was, obviously. Um, And now at least I make records I choose to make them. So it's kind of like, well, maybe I would have been making more records if I had stuck with it. You've worked with, like, Henry Rollins. You've worked mm-hmm. with Lenny Kay, Nile Rodgers, mm-hmm. Misfits. Was was any of that at that studio? Um, some of that was. Henry Rollins was there. Um, Misfits was there. Jeff Buckley was there. Okay. But, like, uh, Michael Giroff from Swans was there. Vernon Reed. Nile Rodgers was... Nile Rodgers, Vernon Reed, that was after. That was... That's only a few years ago. You know, you question whether or not that helped or hurt your career and that you did make more records, but do you think that's more indicative of the recording industry in general? It's possible. It's possible. It's hard. It's, of course, it's impossible to know, but I think that most people that are at least still making a lot of records these days are people that have their own places or people that are tied into one place. They might feel limited because they can't go and, you know, make a record anywhere because they are tied into one place, but at least they're constantly making records. I'm not constantly making records anymore. I'm constantly being a tech right now and fixing stuff and wiring stuff. And not, I'd rather be making records constantly, but... But being a tech is, is one of many hats you wear now, because, I yes. mean, you, you record, you mix, you master. And for you know people that don't know, go to hillaryjohnson.com to see what Hillary does. But in the last 14 years since you've left that place... What percentage of that has been doing records, would you say? Well, for a long time, I also did web design. So it was kind of like recording, web design, and tech were all equal. 
were all like a third, a third, a third. I've since dropped the, well, pretty much dropped the web design stuff and picked up a lot of that in tech stuff. Although I've been doing a lot more recording in the last couple of years than I have maybe in the past. And it's, it's, it's hard to really put a number on it, but I, I don't know. I'm not sure how to answer that really. That's okay. But I mean, you do all those things because they all are income streams and they all support your living where you live. And I enjoy them all too. Yes. Now, how did you get into the uh, into the technical side of it? Because I was looking at some of the pictures of, in particular, the pictures that caught my attention on your website was, where is it here? Uh, building a custom mastering console for Paul Gold salt oh, yeah. mastering. Mm -hmm. That made my head spin. <laughs> it made mine spin too. <laughs> I mean, I I uh, had a tech a freelance tech that worked for me at the studio where I worked in the '90s. And when he knew I left there, he, he was chief at um, Sound on Sound, and he basically needed someone part-time that wasn't overly experienced. And um, he called me up and he said, you know, do you want to come and be a tech here? And I was like, uh, he's like, well, you already know how to calibrate a studer. That's really what's important, and I can teach you the rest. And I was like, okay. Great. And, um, you know, and that sort of... I've rewired several big rooms in the, the five years or whatever that I worked for that company. And that turned into, because that was only part-time, that turned into doing that on a smaller scale for independent studios. So it was a lot of wiring, wiring, wiring. Not so much inside gear, um, just all outside the gear. And then that just kind of became obviously helpful when making records. Because if something breaks, you just quickly fix it, as opposed to being, I don't know, sorry, can't fix that. And then as far as, like, freelancing, I mean, I, it's all word of mouth in terms of tech. You know, people call me up and say, hey, you, you know, you wired uh, Bob Power Studio. Can you come and, you know, do my place? I have this, I have this, I have this. I was like, sure. So I sit down with them, kind of act as a consultant and go over what they need, what they want. And then that turns into, you know, you always learn something when you do, when you work on something. And then when Paul reached out to me, he's like, you know, you did, I don't even remember what he, I had known him from doing another studio in the same building and gone up one day and asked him if he had any shrink tubing. <laughs> and, um, but his, his, that job was crazy because everything was custom. Everything was, um, made like all his, all the gear inside the console was all, essentially DIY. He would get um, schematics and stuff online and sort of modify them himself, make a prototype, and then have me come in and stuff the boards, and then do all the wiring for the actual physical console. So it was definitely the first time I'd done anything like that. I encourage people to go and check these pictures out. It's it's a big job. Yeah, it was a huge job. I mean, it, because I wasn't there every day, I was only there maybe one or two days a week. It probably took like a year, maybe even more. Wow. Yeah. Let's talk about the business end of, of, of the tech part of that. Mm -hmm. So do you charge by the hour? Yes, I charge by the hour with tech work. With recording, it's a lot more standard. Like most people record, or charge by the day or sometimes by the project, like if they're mixing. But with tech, I have to charge by the hour because it's, you know, people want one thing and you, you give them an estimate and they're like, okay, that's great. And then they say, hey, while you're here, can you fix this blah, blah, blah? Sure, you know. Um, but definitely by the hour. 
you know, and there's always, you know, there's always little breaks and there's always like stuff that maybe happens and you have to stop and check something. And, you know, I don't, I'm not a jerk about it. Like I'll, if it's like a 10 hour day, but really only there was maybe eight hours of work done, I'll still only charge them for eight. But if they say, oh, can you actually do this while you're here? I say, sure. You know, it'll just be, I'll just add it to the bill. And people understand that. I think it's, it's really interesting is what, you know how our industry is now people don't want to pay to make a record they do they're still okay with paying tax that's good to know yeah <laughs> so i encourage <laughs> anyone who's looking to get into an audio field audio anything career like get some tech background get some tech knowledge because that's going to probably pay your bills for the next however many years if you can you know manage to get some chops in that if you just want to make records like that's cool but you're going to it's like it's another added bonus to someone that is going to come make your record. Well, you know, producer A um, can really help us with our harmonies. Producer B can help us with our harmonies and can help us, you know, with the intonation of our guitar or make us some cables that would be really cool to have on stage. You know, it's just another thing to add to your arsenal. As far as, you know, making records now, you say you're making fewer records uh, how are you getting the work for that? Is it still word of mouth? It's still word of mouth. Every, like maybe every other year, I'll go through a series of, you know, email blasts and, you know, whatever to bands that I've worked with before. Like, hey, hey, what's going on? Or to studios, do you need anybody? Um, but generally, because of the tech work, I've been so busy that it's hard to even have time to do that. So it's all pretty much word of mouth. Like the last five or six records I've been working on have been either existing clients that are coming back doing a new project or other people saying, hey, you did so-and-so's record. It's really amazing. I want to work with you. What's, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's nice, though, when you have people coming back, you know, from oh, previous work. Those repeat clients really, like, I've got a couple of those. Yeah. Really help pay the bills over the over the course of time. Yeah. And those are, you know, for me, I don't know if it's the same for you. Those are the people, it seems that they, they give you the least hassle. Oh, and, of course. And you trust them the most. And they trust you. And that's why it's easy because you can just talk openly as opposed to sort of skirt around any kind of production issues or even technical issues too. Of the work you do as a recording engineer, is it mostly... DIY artists paying their own bills or mostly. are there labels involved? Yeah, mostly. The only things that, that labels have been paying me for lately are mastering. The rest is pretty much just bands putting out their own records. Well, that's not, that's not totally true, but in general, that's a general, general statement. Let's talk about the mastering thing. And I'll share my feelings about this with you. And I, I want to see if you feel the same way or you experience the same thing. Um, we have a lot of high-end mastering folks around you know, in Northern California alone. And I think that mastering to a lot of people is this like voodoo art, this black art. And I think that those of us who are recording engineers, we have respect for our, uh, our friends that are dedicated mastering engineers. Yes. You've been doing it a long time. I've been doing it a long time as recording engineers. We see what they're doing and we've been exposed to it enough that we feel that we can handle a certain amount of mastering uh, and that we're not hacks. Right doing it do you ever feel a weird pressure like should i be mastering or, or it depends i have definitely felt that it, if i'm working on a record if i'm recording a record if i'm recording and mixing a record i don't really want to master it right and not because i don't think i can 
but because honestly, I don't think I can, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm too close to it. I always tell people, if you want me to master it, we're going to have to wait at least a month. Otherwise I'm going to go yeah. on and tweak stuff. And, um, and as far as I think records that come to me that I haven't worked on already, and they want to be mastered, and they say, we want, you know, this is a competitive record, blah, blah, blah. And so, well, maybe you should go to an actual, ma you know, special, like, person who specializes in mastering. I can master your record, but you might get better results going to someone else. And then they say, oh, I can't afford that. Because I don't charge as much as, you know, an actual mastering engineer. So I'm that guy, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who's underbidding the professionals, I, but the thing is, I am a professional, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. I feel the same way about, you know, mixing and, and mastering the same record. But if you get some distance from it, mm -hmm. or I also feel like if there's only uh, like four to five songs, I feel like I'm okay with. Yeah. But anything beyond that, I start to go, you know, oh, wow, this is... Well, it also opens up a whole other conversation with just about the way that everyone listens to music these days and what people expect and what people want out of a master. So we know that if this is just a digital release, it's not going to be put on CD. It's definitely not going to be put on vinyl. You know, it's going to be up on the streaming sites. Maybe the band is going to sell it on Bandcamp. There are certain liberties we can take when we're mastering it. Whereas if a band says that we're putting out vinyl, um, we're doing first, we're just going to do a thousand, then we're going to do more. You're like, um, that's awesome. Let me hook you up with someone else because I don't want to fuck up your record. I think that's a great qualifier for whether or not a recording engineer who doesn't do mastering every single day, mm -hmm. if they're streaming, if they're doing a digital release, but the minute, uh, you know, serious sequencing and vinyl and or CD and many songs starts to come into play, that's when I get a little like, yeah, let's let's up the ante here and, and let me introduce you to somebody. But even still then, I find that people are like, they can get really chintzy about mastering. I mean, for me, I feel that I'm valuable to someone as a mastering engineer because I will give their album song ep whatever full attention you know i'll go in and get rid of clicks and pops whereas a lot of mastering engineers that are maybe my level you know about on on par with me or i'm on par with them whatever won't do that they'll just you know find the chorus do what they can and then run it through and not even really listen while they're while it's going down and so in a sense because i'm meticulous and because i give a crap i feel that at least that part is what's valuable to the to the record. And obviously real, obviously professional mastering engineers who are only mastering, and this is what they're doing, they do that too, and they maybe they listen with headphones for all the clicks and pops, and they have assistants that do it one, you know, whatever it is, they'll do that too. I'm not talking about those people, I'm talking about people like me who are recording engineers who also master. It's kind of like when the finalizers, that's what they were called, right? TC Electronics, the finalizers? TC, yeah, you're, yeah okay. the finalizers. When those first came out and everyone was like, oh, just mass me a record with this. It's kind of like, yeah, it'll work. People will listen to it. If the song's good, they'll like it. But it's not right. You know, you're going to have some weird, like, you know, over compression or something happening that you're not hearing. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I'm not trying to speak for all high-end mastering engineers, but in some cases, they give you the day or they give you what you know the time that they give you. Mm-hmm. And then if you change your mind about like, actually, I think it sounds a little bright, some are going to charge you for that time. Some will. I find that most lately, more often lately, they will do one revision. Mm. And if it's extremely different, then it's a little bit more, like they will charge a little more. But if it's subtle and they don't have to recall too much or whatever, then it's like no problem. You say that the, most of the label work you do is for mastering. Now, how are you getting that work? That's also word of mouth. Usually bands that record themselves that are smart enough to know how to record themselves and smart enough to know how to mix themselves to that they're, at least they're happy but they know that there still needs to be another set of ears in there some in some step. Those are usually okay. the people. And there also is money behind it in some way. Like some labels will at least pay for mastering. If they're going to pay for replication, they'll pay for mastering. But, you know, the bands that are paying for everything themselves, then they'll maybe just kind of go with the whoever's mass, whoever's replicating it doing the little mastering. You know, the the, the factories that like press the vinyl or the factories that um burn the whatever i don't even know what it is these days if it's still a pmcd or not at least then they have someone who work in there can at least level stuff out a little bit when you're mastering actually when you're mixing or mastering these days are you placing any emphasis on providing the client with high res masters of any yeah sort? i will master in the highest format that they give me and then basically depending on what they're and i'll give it back to them that way and if they don't know how to convert something you know um then I'll do it for them depending on what they what they need. If they're replicating CDs, then I'll just find out what the factory needs. Uh, if they're just releasing digital, then I'll just give them like, you know, 2444 wave files. If they're going up on Bandcamp or iTunes, then I give them the highest. You know, I don't really dither. I don't know. It's not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> now... Let's talk about something else I see on your website that caught my attention. Um, you sell yourself as an archivist. Talk to me about that. It just goes along with being really meticulous and wanting clean tracks. So a lot of times um, I know that bands who aren't recording themselves don't have access to any DAWs. So basically I'll say, well, you could basically take these tracks to anyone if you want to do a remix down the line or if you want to... Um, you know, revisit something or for whatever reason, you just want nice, crisp, clean copies, kind of like having a master tape, you know, I'll go in and I'll just consolidate everything so that it all has the same start time, clean it up, make sure everything's named right. So that basically someone else could re could import the tracks later where they could open these pro tool sessions and have them clean. Sometimes I'll go as far as printing effects and stuff like that. If somebody wants, it also, it also happens with bands that want to, it's like they want mixed stems, but they want everything. They don't. They want mixed tracks. <laughs> they call them stems, but they actually just want the tracks with all the effects on them. So there's some of that too. 
And for a while, I was actually doing archiving for some major labels while working at Sound on Sound, where there's a big, long, crazy, ridiculous process involved with that. And that was, you know, you'd get paperwork and you'd get um, DDS backup stuff and, you know, everything was the letter based on a manual, you know, based on a set of instructions that I came up with myself based on some other specs I think that Sony had or maybe it was Atlantic that had it, Atlantic Records, I don't remember. It was 10 years ago. Um, but it's, it's mostly just like getting everything as, as, as um, neat and tidy as you can before saying, okay, we're done with this record, even though it's been mastered and maybe it's even out for distribution already. In the past, it's always played a great importance in, you know, major, major label stuff and, you know, classic albums of the time. I mean, those practices of archiving and, and really taking care of stuff was important, is important. How does the independent artist uh, who's not in New York and, and able to access you, what do you think they should be doing? I think it really depends on whether an artist or a band is making a vanity record or if they're making a commercial record. I think if they're making a commercial record, they should completely be archiving their material, making it possible to be played 10 years from now. However that is for them, doesn't matter, as long as, it, as, long as that, that step is taken. Because we live in a digital realm where everything, you know, files get corrupt. Um, God forbid you have something on an optical disc. Those stop, you know, CDRs, the... the um, the, the heat kills them or whatever. You have it on a hard drive, the hard drive won't mount. So we, it, you know, in the least, make it so you can, you know, open these sessions or even just play the files back 10 years from now. If it's a vanity project, eh, all you really need is this song. So I don't necessarily think it's as important unless the person who's making the record wants it, wants that level of, you know, anal retentive, uh, archiving. Does that answer your question? It does. And I, you know, I've, I have a shelf full of hard drives here and people I've lost touch with that I've tried to reconnect with. And just in the interest of seeing the integrity of those albums kept together, like I pay for this, it's like, it's called Crash Plan and it's just like Carbonite. Like there'll be a drive sitting here on my shelf and I'll just hook it up and have it sit on my computer on for a week while Crash Plan backs it up. So I know that if that drive dies, I at least have the cloud backup because the band has never taken the step right. of of doing anything about it. I leave them a message, nobody gets back to me. You know, and I think, do these people care? This is actually in spite of the fact that they're an independent band and nobody's going to push the record. It's a really cool record. Well, that's when you're dealing with band politics, when no one wants to deal with something like that because they're all fighting or they, they broke up and they don't, they don't even want to deal with it because they don't want to talk to each other anymore. And that's another yeah. good reason for archiving <clears throat> because you had all these playlists and playlists and playlists of vocals and vocals and guitar takes and solos and, you know, drum takes and everything, and you have gigs and gigs and gigs and gigs, right? And you want to put that right. somewhere? Oh, well, archive it. One song, one take, maybe some other outtakes or something. Minimize the amount of hard drive space so that you can store it in the cloud. Or you can store it on one big, you know, raid array drive or something of your own. Just keep it, you know, but it's less space. Less to have to also question later like which take it wasn't labeled comp is this the right uh sounds like the record but i don't but maybe this is better maybe we should use this no nah, 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 nah. get rid of it <laughs> treat it treat it like <laughs> tape 
Unless you're some sort of, you know, unless it's a whole different ball game, but you know. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Are you uh, are you a proponent of Pono? Uh, of yeah. Pono? <laughs> Completely. Are you a proponent? Completely. I'm pro Pono. Completely. You know, for no other reason than we can. And other than the fact that, you know, internet speeds are still slow and it takes a lot to download, to stream, you know, a bigger right. file obviously is going to be chunk, chunk, chunk down. But if we're not, if we're just playing offline and we're just listening to something and there's a possibility that there are artifacts that are there, I want to hear them. I want to feel them at least. Right. So, yeah, I don't know about 192 because I've never worked with 192, but at least with 88 or 96, yes. Every, every record I do now, if I can, because I've started it, is 88, 24. You know, there's, there's people debating the, the whole high-res thing in general, but if one thing Pono does bring to the table, it's an affordable digital-to-analog converter in a portable format. And the headphone uh, amp is actually more than 16 bits. Yeah. That alone is fantastic. Because people don't realize, like, they DJ right, on these professional sound systems using the headphone out jack of their iPod. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, that's a whole other shoebox. That's a whole other interview, that's isn't it? a whole other interview. Let's transition to that, actually. You do some live sound, and you do some, and you DJ, too, right? Yeah. God, you do a lot of things. No, I have a very big hat rack. I, I'm assuming that's interest-based and not necessarily economic based the djing is social for me it's social and it's also getting new music out there that i like and wanting to spread it around and also just being able to hear stuff at a club or a bar that i want to hear so that's pretty much social and fun and um a way to get gussied up (laughs) as far (laughs) as the live sound that i don't really like live sound um i do it specifically at one place because I redid the whole sound system at this one place. And there was a party that was weekly that I like to go to that I DJ every once in a while. And I wanted to help them, basically. And so I redid their whole sound system, put in, you know, redid the speakers, this out, and got proper amps, limiters, BQs, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, they said, well, we, don't, we need someone to run this for us. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I can try and help you find someone there. Can you do it? We trust you. You know, when you know what's going on, I was like, uh, I guess I'm doing live sound now. <laughs> that's yeah. a whole other learning curve because you're like you can't hit rewind and you have no relationship with the bands that come in and play 
They don't know if you know what you're doing, and especially being a chick. They assume you don't know, the majority, I'm not going to say everyone, they assume you know nothing. You know, the place that I work is kind of a dump on purpose, sort of. It's a, you know, it's kind of a dive bar, and so stuff isn't great, and it doesn't sound great, and I do what I can, but I really don't like it. Monitor, doing monitors is like the worst, the worst unfun ugh, thing in the world. Let's start to head into the direction of money talk and surviving. You live in a very expensive city. New York is not known for being cheap. No. Just like San Francisco. Right. What's working for you financially as far as all this stuff that you're doing? Is it mainly tech work that's really um, helping you out? I, as far as that's concerned, mostly the tech stuff because I charge, I don't have to waiver on my rate. But really what's working for me is that I have, that I do wear multiple hats and can do all of them well. I think if I only did one thing, if I only recorded, I'd be screwed. I'd have to get a day job. So I think really what's working for me financially is that I do all of these things and can do all of them simultaneously. And do you get nervous when you have a day off? Oh, yeah. Today was a day off. I'm like, I'll get a tattoo. Yeah. (laughs) How do you... uh, Well, do I get nervous when I have a day off? No. Do I get nervous when I have a week off, which is rare, rare to have it in a row? But let's say, do I get nervous if I have maybe seven days out of a month that aren't that I'm not working? Yes. Yeah. Completely. But that comes with being freelance. What do you find uh, challenging about clients and money? What's what's something that sticks out to you that you think, God, if I could only change this thing about this relationship between my clients and, and the money what? beyond... That's just knowledge. I wish that I could show, for example, a band the difference that could be made if they hired a professional to make their record. You know, I wish that I could give them, like, here's album A recorded by the band by themselves. Here's that same album recorded by someone that they hired. But you can't do that because it doesn't exist. But that would be what I would wish, is that I could give people insight as to what the differences would be like i don't have any problem talking about money with bands or artists or clients at all i have no issue with that um i don't have any problem saying okay can i get a check for me today okay i can take credit cards or cash or check whatever's easy like i have no problem with that it's more just like they say they don't have any money i'm like okay i can't do anything for you i'm not gonna i'm not a bottom feeder i did that 15 years ago that's when i was working for free i'm not going to work for free now if you can't afford me i'm sorry it's too bad um what do you do with clients that don't basically kind of lag on paying you or don't pay you i have only maybe twice in my life ever had a problem with that and the one time that I had a problem with that. I just kept bugging the label every six months, every six months. And I finally did get paid. It was probably three years later. And I'm sure there was another time and I honestly can't think of it. I, I am pretty casual about it. If it's a client that I don't know, or I feel like they might be sketchy with money, then I ask for a deposit on anything, tech, recording, whatever. But if it's someone I know, I, I'm not worried about it. I know I'll get paid. I mean, usually people pay me at the end of everything or within a month or two, except for friends. Sometimes friends lack, but I know they're going to pay me. It just comes in in little bits here and there. You know, they'll PayPal me 50 bucks one week and then they'll pay me, PayPal me $300 the next month or something, you know. Now, let's say I come to you and I'm 21 years old and I just got out of some recording school and I say, Hillary, you know, I need some advice on dealing with clients and money. What's, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Well, I think if you were 21 you wouldn't need the money so much. You would really just want the experience. That would be your primary goal without even necessarily realizing it. And so I would say, do the, do the work 
get what you can out of it financially. Get people to pay you when you can, but do not pressure them because that will make you look like you're just doing it for the money. If you're genuinely not doing it for the money, don't do it for the money. If you're doing it for the money, go get a full-time job like as, you know, in some sort of related field like an AV installation job, which I actually have as a part-time job now, um, or, you know, a, a teaching job or working as an assistant at a studio or something that's going to help you financially. You know what? Does that make sense? That does make sense. And if you were maybe 30 and you had, say, 10 years experience making records and you were saying, you know, I, I really feel like I'm at the next level and I want to start charging more realistically for my work, I'm going to get married and I need to support blah, blah, blah. And then I'd say, well, figure out what you need to make and tell that to the, the bands or the artists that you're going to work with. Tell them up front. You know, you discuss a little bit and then say, this is what I charge. And find out right away if they can handle that or not. Because if they can't, they're going to waste your time. Unless it's a band that you really want to work with and it'll really help you, you know, it'll look good on your resume and all that stuff. Then you can, you know, see if you can just get paid for food and transportation and all that stuff, as long as it's not going to break the bank. I always make it a point for, in my dealings with my clients, to, um, you know, document sort of through email, just to, if we have a phone conversation and and we discuss the money, then I follow up with an email or try to follow up with an email to say, hey, as we discussed, I charge this amount of money for this project, and this is kind of what I'm expecting to be paid, and this is what I'm going to deliver. I definitely summarize every meeting in an email. You know, even if there isn't money discussed yet, just to, you know, summarize like, okay, this is what you want to do. You know, we talked about doing it at this studio or that studio. Um, You want to do 12 songs, you know, and then I'll say, this is my rate, just so you know, Uh, you know, and if it's friends, I'll still do the same thing. I'll say, but I, you know, this is what I normally charge, but because we're friends, I can do a whatever discount, you know. It's like I got a lot of friends, so there's a lot of discounts. (laughs) (laughs) It's unfortunate, but, you know. That's what happens when you want to make records with bands you like. You know, you, you get paid less. And as far as mixing is concerned, do you charge by the song or by the hour? How do you deal with that? Because I don't consider myself, quote, a mixer, I consider myself a recording engineer. I also mix, mix records. Um, I charge a daily rate. And I know some people that are mixers charged by the song. I can't do that because so many people want so many different things in a song. And they'll want to tweak and go back and make changes. And it doesn't make sense. You just, you know, you, you set aside the time and you do it. And if it's not done, then you go back and you do it again. And you, you should get paid for that time. I mean, it's different if, if you're just mixing a song for someone and they're not around and they have no say. Then I, I can see charging a flat rate. I've just never done that because I usually work more back and forth with an artist if they're not in the room with me. There's a lot more going back and forth. Well, cool, Hillary. I, th- I think that answers a lot of the questions I had for you. Okay. Any other thoughts you want to share? There's a zillion other thoughts. You know, I just hope that our industry continues, however that has to happen, between you know the, the financial aspect of it or the artistic aspect of it. I'm hoping that something like Pono is going to make people more interested in audio and quality yeah. again. And in turn, respect the people that, that, you know, their craft is reliant on making things sound good. And then whether it's a financial boost or a personal boost or whatever, that we'll all be able to survive. All the new people coming in and all the people have been doing it for a really long time. We all, you know, it's our jobs, it's our livelihood, not just financially, but emotionally too. So 
I hope something changes soon. I don't know what it is, but I hope that it does. I missed you in Tucson, and do you plan on going this year? Or next year, rather? I don't know. I'm trying to do an actual vacation somewhere, like Tropical Island or something, so that may um, take out the, the financial uh, whatever to be able to go there, too. It still is fun and, and a good time, so if you can make it great, yeah, if not, true. you know, I hear you. All right, my dear, go enjoy some Thai food, and thank you. Good talking with you, too. Okay, take care. Talk to you soon. All right, there you have it. Woman of many hats, Hillary Johnson. Check her out at hillaryjohnson.com. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. And that's it for us. Go over to Facebook, like us, hit us up at uh, Work Class Audio on Twitter. Check us out there. As I say, do the social media tour and be sure to tell all your audio friends or music friends or anybody who's interested in the aspects of the freelance audio world that we're talking about. Get them on over here. Get them to subscribe. We'd love to have them. All right. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.